pop-up box that says recording in progress. <laughs> All right. It's official. This is a podcast now. Yeah, two friends doing a podcast. Welcome back to the QTB podcast. I'm Al. Pronouns are he, they, or bitches. And this is my fantastic co-host. Lizzie, she, her pronouns. Yes. This week in particular on the podcast, we're going to be talking about basically the whole queer dictionary and lexicon and some of the different... Yeah, it'll be good for us to have a general overview of just like the different types of people that are in the community and how they define themselves collectively. Obviously it doesn't include some of the other schisms that can exist in other groups, but just to kind of give a general overview. So we're gonna start off with talking about sexuality. You mean like the gays? How did you know where we were going first? It's crazy. Yeah, so we're gonna talk about some overarching sexualities that are pretty well known. So starting off with gay or some people call them homosexuals and there's also lots of other terms. So these are specifically people who find same gender attraction very comfortable or exciting and prefer those types of people. It's most common with males to identify with gays as far as I know. I would say as from the the lesbians and queer women that I know gay is kind of the overarching term for anybody these days who happens to be monosexual, which is a word to describe your type of sexuality, whether you're attracted to one or more than one gender. But there are layers to the gay onion because not only is gay an identity for generally men and women, but there's the other layer to the gay, which is a lot of us queer people who have multi-sexualities where we're attracted to two or more genders or all the genders, We'll use gay just as a way to be like, I don't feel like telling you what I am, but I'm queer. And if I say queer, you might be afraid of it. So I'll just say gay because it's easy. Yeah, we've had many conversations about that. We tend to attach the same value, I think, to the word gay or the same understanding with that. But the further we go down the list, I think the further we'll find some separation. Oh, goodness. Yes. Obviously, we've kind of already mentioned the second term you're probably familiar with lesbian. That's those those are women who are attracted to other women. I always like hearing the very specific terms. And we were talking when we were putting this together about, you know, the history of women loving women and still finding that term being used is really interesting to me. The further you go into the history, the more you realize that those terms were kind of necessary. So our next fancy word is questioning. And I think I've had this period, I think, for a really long time, which is trying to figure out where you fit and how you identify. Um, So in terms of your sexuality, like, who do I like? Is it that I like the gender about them? Is it that I find my attraction to this specific component? And like looking in yourself and trying to figure out where you fit, what words fit, what words absolutely do not fit, and trying to find a box for yourself and understanding yourself in, you know, your own bubble of sexuality. You don't necessarily have to be heterosexual and questioning whether or not you're queer. You can be a type of queer questioning the type of queer, just finding the right box, as you've explained. The other cue of our alphabet soup is queer. It also was a derogatory term for Oh, a better part of a hundred years or so. Yeah, but I love that our community has taken it back and is like 
this is a word that we're using now and it has morphed meaning somewhat. Some people still remember it for its derogatory use, but we've taken the word back as something to unite everyone under like the queer umbrella. So our next word is so <laughs> curious, which on its own just means like exploring yourself, kind of a continuation of the questioning identity. Um, but I think how you and I hear it the most is by or pan curious, which is kind of like feeling out your word. So for a while in my lifetime, I was bi curious, like, oh, do I do I feel like this word really fits me? I feel like I need to know the word a lot better, understand like what's happening in me. Like, is it really two types? Is it more to try to differentiate between bi and pan and trying to figure out where in that sphere you belong? It's it's right up there with questioning and it's in the same vein. It just happens to more often than not be kind of specific to the multi-sexualities. Our next group is it is a group. It's the um, asexual or ace spectrum. Loosely defined asexual are people within a spectrum of having more or less sexual attraction to others and or romantic attraction to others. So someone who identifies strictly as asexual may not have any specific sexual attraction or desires to other people of any gender whereas they could still have romantic attractions and want to have romantic relationships, but without the uh, sexy time component. Um, demisexual people are usually folks who need strong emotional friendship and connection before that sexual desire develops. The, the whole ACE spectrum is something that is absolutely valid and is a kind of a tiny point of contention in the queer community overall, because there's some discussion of whether or not people who are asexual or on the spectrum are really queer and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and put my foot down and say shut up if they want to be they are if they want to be a part of our community they're a part of our community this is the best foot after that we have the beginning of the multi-sexualities yeah so we get to start with my word which is crazy which is bisexual and feeling romantic and sexual attraction to two genders specifically. Little it's also important to clarify that the definition is two or more, but it doesn't necessarily restrict to just the two as much the name originally described. And historically it was two genders mm -hmm. and has since evolved. There are four main multisexualities and that's what bisexual is, meaning that you're attracted to more than one gender. Total of the four multisexualities are bisexual, pansexual, omnisexual, and polysexual. All of these have attractions to more than two genders in varying different ways. And there's this beautiful little crossover Venn diagram of four different bubbles because you have two or more genders where there can be variability on how you are attracted to those differences with bisexuality. Pansexuality is gender is unimportant. It's not a factor. Omnisexuality, gender is not necessarily a factor as well. And then polysexuality is three or more genders. And there's different minute little pieces that differenti differentiate the four of them. And this is how umbrellas are created. <laughs> I don't know. I think about it this way. Like queer is the overarching umbrella with many things underneath it. So when we're talking about right now, it, it has been under the bisexual umbrella, but we have arguments with this. <laughs> it's a debate going on outside of just the two of us too. I don't think we should continue to refer to it as the bi umbrella, particularly for the cishet people listening to this podcast, because you don't necessarily know, and I, I mean specifically the people who are 
heterosexual, not queer in any way listening to this. You specifically don't necessarily know that bisexuality isn't actually bi meaning two. It's, it's not necessarily that dichotomous thing. And I don't want that lack of clarity to be a problem. It's finding a word that best describes all four of them. Right now, multisexuality is something that I see other people use. I like the sound of polysexualities, but I can understand how that can cause confusion with people who identify as polysexual, thinking that putting that, that similar wording at the top of that umbrella can create more confusion, which is why I'm willing to say multisexualities, even though that sounds horrible rolling off the tongue. <laughs> but bi definitely does not, it would probably be the one that doesn't match up the most. Right. It's the most alienating. So even just changing the word from that as, as a bisexual person, I'm willing to relinquish that title to other sexualities and be under it. <laughs> I, I can't stress enough to the people listening to this, that I'm not saying that bisexual people shouldn't exist or that it's not okay to be bi. I'm saying the way we label a group of sexualities needs to be clearer for the sake of the allies and the non-queer people who don't understand the nuance. Yeah, you get, I mean, just us making this list, like of, it's mind boggling how many words there are and like the nuances that exist within each of them as well. So that's, that, that's the basic multi-sexualities. And of course, this isn't also to forget that queer itself can be a multi-sexuality, but queer is also a gender identity and an umbrella term for the whole communities. I'm really excited to talk more about our subtypes because <laughs> we have very different <laughs> perspectives on this. Specifically, we're talking about um, polyamory and then, of course, your famous monogamy. Um, I, I campaigned to keep these in here for this specific day because it's actually really important to talk about polyamory for anyone who doesn't know is um, literally poly meaning multi, amory meaning love. You have the, the ability to love more than one person romantically or sexually, at any given time. It's not necessarily one person and one person. You, you don't, soulmates doesn't mean just two people always. Maybe soulmates is four people in a weird complex quadrangle. Who knows? But I consider these sexuality subtypes, monogamy and, and polyamory, because at least for me, polyamory is innate part of my sexuality. Sure, I'm pansexual, but I am also innately polyamorous. I'm capable of more than loving more than one person romantically always not that i am going to do so i could live the rest of my life out in a monogamous relationship who knows but it's an innate part of my sexuality and not necessarily a sexuality of its own on the flip coin of that and i have only done monogamy and um polyamory has been brought up to me after i came out to my partner of now eight years so I've only ever been in monogamous relationships pretty much my whole life long. And I have a very possessive style <laughs> when it comes to like my, my intimacy and my, my sexual and romantic relationships. So as a privileged monogamous, happily married person, I have always seen this more as a relationship type than a sexuality. And the more we discuss the more I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But it right. takes me a while to get there. Well, and it, it is a it is a relationship type. Polyamory is a type of relationship, but like I describe, it's a part of me innately. It's not necessarily the relationship part. A lot yeah. of words that we know have more than one meaning, you know, such as queer being one of the most 
confusing words for 90% of the people who are in the community. <laughs> and they have different connotations. Some people will look at polyamorous and immediately think that you're promiscuous, just like one of the stereotypes of bisexuality or pansexuality is being promiscuous just because I'm capable of liking more than one person at a time or more than one gender in general doesn't mean I'm doing them all at once. Very personally, I can only like get to know and like old school court one person at a time. I can't talk to like four different people and have little feelers out to even just like, I know monogamous people who are only looking for one partner who will be like, I'm talking to these five people right now. We're going to go on a couple of dates and see what's going on. I can't do that. It is one person at a time. And then if we also talk about, if that person becomes a more specific exclusive relationship, we can talk about allowing other people into it in the future, but it's one at a time. I can't juggle people. I focus. I know folks who are identify as asexual, who are asexual. Um, I'm going to try and stop saying identify as, because that implies that they somehow are less than or different. Um, but people who are ace, who are asexual, but also biromantic. They'll have romantic relationships, but they don't have that sexual desire. They don't want to do all the genital things, which is totally fine. Hey, Al, I think I have a gender. You have a gender? That's crazy. I have a gender. What's your gender? if you want to share. Well, that's our first word. Uh, I identify as cisgender. So that means I was born female and I have stayed for the most part congruent with that. You were born and assigned female. Yes, correct. I was assigned female. The best thing I can assume is that you have a vagina because that's what doc, well, you have a vulva. That's what doctors saw <laughs> when your legs popped out and were like, that's a girl. Well, it's about to get more interesting. <laughs> a lot of the times in the community and Cis cisgender hetero person, um, they they're typically just in like this category of like having the most power of like also cisgender, but also heterosexual and not really understanding the other nuances that exist or um, oftentimes the belittling, you know, what other sexualities or other gender identities and how they develop and how they change constantly. <laughs> Words we use, pronouns we use, everything we use can change at any point in time. Especially with, with pronoun usage, it's important to note cis people can also use alternate pronouns like they, them, or Z here. You don't have to be trans or underneath that umbrella to use them. If you have a word, if you have a pronoun that you want to use, use it. You don't, you don't necessarily have to be trans to go by they, them. Revolutionary. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, so being cisgender in, you know, the gender identity is convenient. It's nice and convenient. <laughs> it is. You don't necessarily have to think about your gender, whereas our next term is something I identify as. It's, and I am, it's, it's transgender, meaning I was assigned female at birth. And uh, then doctors did done got it wrong because I'm, I'm not, I, I, meh, I would go with more transmasculine as a gender identity and gender queer and non-binary than anything else. And I can use all three of those. If anyone's wondering, why are you using multiple? Um, it's because they all kind of describe the same thing, but in different nuanced way, non-binary, though it is something people can use. Is it not itself a third gender identity? It's a term for a umbrella, a group of gender identities and fluidity with gender. Um, transmasculine just means that I'm, I'm trans and I happen to lean more into the masculine side of things, though as of late been a bit more femme. Genderqueer is, is uh, 
my gender is queer. It is outside of the norm. It's different. It's flexible. It does what it wants. My gender has a mind of its own. It's crazy. Well, yeah, <laughs> so am I. If I'm crazy, it's crazy. You know, underneath the trans umbrella, as it is itself um, an umbrella, we have underneath transgender specifically, we have the shortening of that word trans, which is right now used as the most inclusive word um, as far as the populace of the community has, is concerned. A term no longer used is transsexual. Back in the day, and I mean in the last, over the last 60 years, let's say, transsexual specifically referred to people who were transgender, but also who sought surgical intervention and affirmation. It, it's a term that's not often used. Some folks who are of older generations do still use it because it's the thing they are com they've come to terms with and they're most familiar with, and that's totally okay. Another term that I didn't put on this list, because we talked about it a little bit, they're kind of controversial, is the term transvestite, which was used to describe people conventionally anyway, who cross-dressed, similar to cross-dresser, though, again, lost nuance as to what the differences were and how they evolve over time. Um, one of my favorite comedians and truly the first trans person I was ever exposed to that I know of because they were out was the beautiful comedian Eddie Izzard. She is phenomenal. She's gender fluid. She is transgender. And back in the day, in the last 25, 35 years since she came out, um, she went from identifying as transvestite, someone who likes to wear clothing, to being transgender and to really delving into her gender fluidity. And as of December of 2020, she actually made a public statement that she wanted to be referred to more in just the feminine pronouns, uh, she, her from now on. And that's totally okay because as a gender, gender fluid person, her gender changes and moves and ebbs and flows like, say, fluid. Don't forget to check your gender fluid every once in a while. It needs to be changed like your oil. But that's like, she she's a, a great example of someone where you can look and see the evolution of these words because she has a couple of great comedy specials where she's always open about who she is. And she explained that, you know, she used to say she was a transvestite, an executive transvestite, an action transvestite, because she, she wasn't just there to dress up. She was like, oh, and y'all have to just look up her shows. It's great. She particularly highlights the way these words have changed. And, you know, it gets, I love the fluidity that exists because it makes people seem like ever evolving always and to always check in on your friends. Like we'll have check-in days with each other. Like, well, how are you doing? What name do you want me to use? What pronouns do you want to do? And checking in that way. That's why we start our podcast with our pronouns again, because you know what? It can change. Like over the past year, I've decided to use bitches. It was a great time. We explored this together. <laughs> I accidentally used the pronoun to describe myself in the third person and I didn't even try. It just happened. It was a great moment. But that's a great opportunity for us to talk about the fact that the binary exists and a lot of people still only use the binary. So <laughs> there's just so much with the binary. There's, there's so many things that can be said, but I wanted to start with like basics of genetics and chromosomes where males have an xy chromosome and females have an xx chromosome so for a while you were assigned female at birth based on the genitalia that you had when you were born and that was how they assigned gender well specifically it was the the genitals and gonads visible at birth because up until what is it like 1960 before genetics was more widely accessible to the medical community it was literally what's between your legs 
that's yeah. what determined your assigned sex at birth. Right. So long time, that's, that's how it functioned. And then in more recent psychological literature, people started questioning, especially around the time that a lot of gays were coming out because every, every all the cis hetero people were like, they're coming out of the woodworks. Where did they come from? How did this happen? And wanting to understand the evolution of gender and sexuality. So a lot of psychologists and theorists started talking about, well, is this something that became natural to them? Or is this something that had to do with their development as they were growing up? So hence began the nurture versus nature phenomenon to understand mental health, also to understand gender and sexuality. And of course, the answer is all of the above. It's never either or, it's all of the above. Um, it is, it's still something that parts of the scientific community are still are still searching for. And there's some researchers that were trying to delve into other variations of the genetics to see if there's a component of that. One of the greatest things that have helped us to understand, and when I'm referring to us here, I'm talking about not only in the community, but also like scientific community and especially right. therapists, you know, are socially constructed rules. And I think the best example is the prison experiment. Do you remember the prison experiment, Al? Which one are you referring to? <laughs> the, the guards experiment. Yeah. So not necessarily the pain that they necessarily inflicted, but the point of putting yourself in roles and having to divvy up what each person is supposed to do for the community wide. So most of the people, because this was done in the late 60s, I believe, I don't remember the year off the top of my head. I have a feeling Al's going to do some research for me, but the it was mostly men that took part of this research. And it was only men. They had like one female person that would come in and bring groceries, essentially. Stanford one. prison experiment. Stanford, that's the word. I know, I couldn't think of the name. <laughs> yeah, so each person had to either act as like a patrol officer or as someone that's being held there. And if you focus more on the prisoner or the people that were being held there side of you, they had split up who was doing chores, who was cleaning, who was cooking. And these were things that typically were more female presented jobs. Like a lot of women stayed home and did cooking and cleaning in the sixties and stay at home mothers were very common. So that helped society to understand okay like there's a social component also to gender and how we continue information like young women learning from their mothers and young boys learning from their fathers and the continuation of social gender roles as well creating a structure and a set of expectations for how you behave within that role role being gender <laughs> that's very sociological of you <laughs> um, it is important to note because that experiment wasn't about gender it was about understanding roles, just roles and power dynamics. It's also important to note that that experiment ended after six days because it, well, was extremely unethical. There were so many problems and it caused so much stuff. They, they shut it down after six days. It was supposed to run for several weeks, but it does highlight some things as do some of the other great failures of our social experiments. That still has, has somehow benefited the society of understanding that social roles and rules exist and are ever present. But besides that, there's also just 
chemicals in our body that exist. So a lot of females have higher levels of estrogen. Everybody has estrogen. Everyone has testosterone. You have these different types of, of what we call sex hormones. Statistically speaking, there's more variety in how much estrogen and how much testosterone you can have within each identified sex category. So um, sex identified females have wider variety of how much testosterone they're going to have in their body versus the estrogen in their body as compared to men within their own group. The, the normal acceptable range of these hormones but for women and for men separately overlap a great deal. <laughs> There's not enough understanding of biology for people to make sense of that listening to a podcast, but it's really important. <laughs> yeah. So like you can be um, assigned female at birth, really feel congruent with your gender identity as a female, but you could have, you know, have estrogen, have testosterone and have those chemicals floating around in your body and be really confused for a long time. It has nothing to do with your identity but it has to do with the chemicals that exist within you. And it, it just has to do with your health. For example, I live with a condition known as PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. What that means is I have high testosterone as compared to other people assigned female at birth. That's just a result of the condition. And that means I have more stereotypically male patterned body and facial hair than other people who were assigned female at birth. I have a deeper voice. I, I have a goatee. Works really well for me because, you know, I, I dig the goatee but I don't take testosterone. I'm not on any kind of hormone blocker or hormone replacement therapy that trans people can do if they want, um, if they're fortunate enough to have the access. But I just naturally have that high level of testosterone. Same thing happens to some people who are assigned male at birth. They just have higher estrogen. That doesn't necessarily mean they have a medical condition because again, there's a wide variety of how high and low these levels can be within a person. And for people who are intersex, which is quite literally the third biological sex that there is, you might not have a particular high or low at any given time. Um, for people who live with Turner syndrome, if I remember correctly, they're androgen insensitive, meaning their body doesn't process the testosterone they make at all. So someone who could be, who, who would otherwise have been male chromosomally, the body doesn't process testosterone the way it should, at least when you look at those chromosomes and th their body develops in an entirely stereotypical female pattern. So they're, they're chromosomally male, physical body, their development female, because their body doesn't process that hormone at all. Mm -hmm. It's like being diabetic, but for sex hormones. Yeah. So for, for us, what is more important is the person's gender exploration and their presentation. Right. So typically you hear about like feminine or masculine, but also others exist. So um, I'm a female, but I tend to dress like more, I guess, masculine in nature. I tend to just wear jeans, a t-shirt and be like, I'm ready for the day. Like, this is what I'm wearing. That's all I'm doing. You're more of a tomboy. Yeah. Yeah. I've been one for Every a very long time. <laughs> it, everything is, is often measured in its relative maleness. So we, people who aren't feminine have to be masculine. That's not actually what it is, but that's how it's measured in our society at the very least. Yeah. So I'm um, a feminine tomboy, which does exist. And I think it's even greater because feminism exists and there's lots of yeses and nos with feminism, but the true goal of is for all genders to be equal. Um, as we get to later, it 
has morphed let's say let's use the word morphed um and does not just include that idea ideology anymore yeah feminism has about four different waves we're, we're currently i would say in the fourth wave when people who aren't familiar who are typically willfully ignorant and unaware of what feminism really is what they think of as man haters and that's that would that's what you can describe as uh second wave feminism the folks who are second wave feminists are also often TERFs which is a term for trans exclusionary radical feminist we'll get into a little bit and we'll go over it but those folks aren't really in line with what feminism is today because modern feminism is a thing called intersectional meaning it recognizes the literal intersections like on a road or on a map of different parts of your of your life like race religion age sex and gender, wealth, economics, all of those things interact in a very untangleable way. And feminism right now in our fourth wave of it is trying to grapple all of those things into the best kind of world we can. The goal is to have an equitable, egalitarian world. Right. And so their true purpose is to find a way where all genders can exist without having to exert power over each other. So typically like we've been saying the whole time cisgender males hold the most power and tend to put down women who want to speak the most oftentimes trans people have been slammed or sham shamed for um transitioning if they've chose to transition and shaming them for not transitioning also (laughs) oh that's a big thing in the trans community yeah, because there are some people who do the transitioning process and feel like they have to wear dresses all the time, have the best makeup, follow the best people who do makeup, and then, you know, trail off into those kinds of worlds. And, you know, a toxic masculinity, uh, It's there is a difference between what is good components of masculinity, um, yes. where toxic masculinity begins and kind of corrodes the distinctions between genders as well and toxic masculinity is a specific title for a category of negative toxic behaviors not always necessarily um they don't necessarily have to be masculine specific behaviors they happen to be what we attribute with masculinity and manhood and they are problematic and we need to work on them like rape culture is a part of toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. um but again that's being masculine isn't inherently toxic yeah, and I love that you brought up earlier about man bashing, because as much as early feminism has done that, and some some women still, you know, oh, yeah. attach they themselves to the I- ideology, it's not about hating that you are a man, but hating how you present as a man and using those toxic masculinity traits. And then we, of course, have the everybody's favorite word androgyny the expectation of people who are non-binary that you must be that beautiful androgynous person that you can't identify their gender of because they're both simultaneously super masculine and super feminine in a way that just balances and you have no idea yeah it's like which box do you fit in well none of them (laughs) all of them none of them and that's exactly how i want it (laughs) but let's be real being androgynous does make you 110 percent hotter immediately (laughs) I think Al had some stuff that they wanted to bring up about drag. Yeah, I, I just want to mix this in here because I, I, I've i been asked this way too many times in my life is what about drag queens? Are they trans? Well, yeah, maybe some of them. The performance of drag, which is dressing in a, a, perf- a specifically artistic performative way with gender. So 
traditional drag queen is what you might think of. It's gay men putting on dresses and wigs and over-exemplifying femininity to an extreme. Or just another example of drag are drag kings who are people assigned female birth, not necessarily always lesbians, but most of the time lesbians. I tend to just prefer calling everybody a drag performer because again, gender way more fluid than that. It's the the performativity of gender, the playing with gender norms and showing how this can be, I want to say elasticated. (laughs) It's a really complicated word, but like how you can bend the rules of gender to highlight how ridiculous they are. Like drag queens, when they paint their face, they not only paint their face to make it look more feminine, but they've exaggerated everything to the level of extreme. Google Trixie Mattel. Drag makeup over-personifies femininity and the expectation of makeup such to the extreme that it makes their faces look inhuman sometimes. And that's literally the point. But that doesn't make drag any less important into our culture because drag drag queens and trans women and other other people of the whole queer community are, were foundational in, in helping us start organized groups and start supporting each other and doing all of the amazing things that in the early 60s, 70s, and 80s, the queer communities were able to rally around and do, especially during particularly tough times in the 80s with AIDS. From there, we're going to kind of talk about, I've been throwing these things around quite a bit. So you might, you've probably caught on by now, but I've been saying things like um, assigned female at birth, assigned male at birth. We also have assigned intersex at birth because again, intersex, whole other biological sex, which is a combination of other conditions that make you intersex. Mm-hmm. Um, other ways to describe them are the acronyms for the phrase assigned female at birth, AFAB or AFAB, assigned male at birth, AMAB. I'm not even going to try and say what assigned intersex at birth, ABE, I guess. <laughs> And so the medical community has done a lot of bad with intersex people um, with or without parent consignment changing the genitalia of children. What, what that also has to entail is transition. And especially if you're, you are an intersex person who is, whose genitals were mutilated by doctors who are just assholes. Because if you're a doctor who thinks changing an intersex child's genitals is a good way to help them get a, to uh, be more normal you probably just set them up to have little to no sexual pleasure due to their genitals or sterilized them involuntarily before they could consent to it. That can result in needing to transition and trans people and intersex people have that in common is that sometimes for intersex people, we have to make changes either in our presentation of our gender. So For me, I've had no medical intervention. I don't take hormones. I haven't had any surgeries. Don't ask people about surgeries or what's in their pants. If they tell you they are a gender or they tell you pronouns, do not ask questions. Just don't. Um, But they may have to transition. That can be socially. Like I've done, I changed the way I dress. I grew out my facial hair and other body hair to be the way I want it to be. Um, Or that can mean hormonal therapy. They can also mean surgical intervention to have more affirming surgeries and to change your body in the way that's going to fit you the best. And it's not cosmetic. It is absolutely 100% medically necessary because if that's going to help you live your most authentic life and be the happiest you can be in the body you have, the only body you get, it should absolutely be done. Right. I only mention it as cosmetic because of how insurance has pathologized the whole experience and also, as a, as a therapist, you'll actually need therapists as part of the transitioning process to get medical clearance for that. 
Yeah, so there's also this type of gatekeeping between insurance and medical field, but most therapists don't agree with gatekeeping tendencies. They tend to just write the letters, um, but a lot of people that go through the transitioning process or identify as trans or any member of the community end up with some mental health. So some therapists request you to stay for some amount of time to try to give you some skills to continue living and to be a stronger individual in that. The, the governmental process is, is the, the barriers are so incredibly high. I haven't changed my name because quite honestly of a huge paywall and the fact that I have to spend a day in court for a judge to make the decision if I am, and I shit you not, this is how it is worded in the government website, if I am defrauding the public by changing my name. So a judge gets to say, well, that name's you or isn't you, and I'm not going to risk it. And at this point, I'm not going to change it until the process changes. I shouldn't have to have uh, references to agree that I use this name. I shouldn't have to pay a fee to put my personal information in the newspaper for three weeks paying for that. I shouldn't have to pay. I shouldn't have to spend a day in court. I don't care if it's zoom court or in an actual courtroom. Thanks the panini in making zoom court. I'm not going to do any of those things. They are unnecessary barriers for nothing. Yeah. So this is something that differs state by state. So thinking about the state of Illinois, it's much easier. It's basically like renewing an ID essentially um and they have recently released that you're allowed to change your gender marker normally it's just male or female and that's how it's been for so long um illinois has released x to include transgender and non-binary people al this is the first time that but it's been out for a couple years now that x exists um as a way to denote trans non-binary i move in with you for six months so i can do that (laughs) Um, but the probably the most friendly state would probably be Massachusetts collectively. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to afford insurance to receive appropriate care. Um, Massachusetts is kind of the leading state with that technology. But intersex has a very sad history. And this is another one of our fabulous umbrella terms. So intersex develops and gets larger and larger. They have different gender identity, they have different ways to express their sexuality, there's different confusion that happens with them because of the intervention of the medical community um, numerous times. It's important to note, being intersex, it is literally a biological scientific sex. Intersex people are cisgender. If you are intersex and you're and that jives with you, you are literally cisgender because that's your biological sex and you jive with it. If it just fits, it fits. Some intersex people who have had their genitals mutilated, literally traumatizing to someone who's an infant and doesn't get a choice in the matter. They're told, the doctors will tell the parents that this is what it'll do, we need to do to make sure that they will have a full life, a normal life. But in reality, what they're doing is altering their natural body from birth, essentially, to make it fit a standard that is just socially constructed. It's what doctors determined to be the standard, not what biology did. And intersex people are biologically cisgender. That is their sex. There's no, they they don't have to transition. They don't have to be trans. But as a result of how the medical community abuses intersex people. Moving on, we have the two-spirit community, which is 
and other third genders of all their cultures, but particularly the two spirits that's that's particular to Native American and indigenous individuals in, in North America um, and specific tribes, of course. Every single tribe can have their own words in their own language because, of course, they don't refer to things in English. The concept of it is that it's that your body inhabits what we would call trans is when your body is inhabited by two spirits and you you have both of those roles. They're usually considered higher status individuals because if you've got essentially what two souls, you're just kind of winning the game here. You're not, you don't just have one soul, you have two. The fact that two spirits, their genders, other cultural thirds exist mm-hmm. is like a callback to that history and that history being erased that we're able to see now, which is why so much of the general public does not know that like transgender has existed for a very long time and that they is singular and plural and that history up till now also has continued. And then we have non-binary, which we've talked about a lot throughout this without really defining it's uh, directly anyway. Um, non-binary is a way to describe gender that exists outside of the male-female binary. I identify as non-binary. My gender just isn't one or the other, more or less. And it isn't necessarily itself a third gender. It is a description of fluidity of gender. Um, so people who fall under that can be trans, they can be agender, uh, pangender, whole other bunch of things. Agender being you don't have an attachment or an identity with a specific gender, pangender being all of them at once um, or at any given time. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't display gendered characteristics because as a society, we have expectations of behavior and, and, and appearance and we will assign a gender to you when we see you regardless of how you identify. That's how we interpret our lives around us. We do that every day, whether we want to, it's not necessarily good or bad, but Agender just means you don't ascribe to a gender and pangender means you ascribe to all of them. So this would be like the non-binary umbrella um, and gender fluid and um, gender queer also fitting underneath there. And these are words to describe the complexity of gender. They aren't necessarily hard and fast. They aren't immutable. They will absolutely change over time. They're just words we have to be able to describe things better because all we have as humans or, you know, grunting monkeys is words, language, and it's going to change. Which makes it really confusing when we come here and we sit about pronouns. I love pronouns. Like I described, I use he, him, they, them. And again, bitches. (laughs) Using bitches in a sentence can be kind of hard, but you know, a bitch does what a bitch does. (laughs) You're welcome. I gave you an example. Um, there are lots of different types of pronouns. There's he, him, she, her, they, them, z, here. They get really they're, complex. There are, they're called neo pronouns. They're different types of alternative pronouns. And I don't want to say alternative meaning. They are a different group. They are absolutely the same as she, her, and he, him. They're just not, they're, they're queer pronouns. They're outside of the norm or the expectation. Uh, I'm going to drill home that queer means outside of the norm. (laughs) (laughs) They're not gender specific. So if you hear he, him, and she, hers, you tend to think of cisgenders male than cisgender females to break out of that is where the X's and Z's existed. Z and here as a pronoun combination, like Z went for a walk with here's dog or Z went to a walk with Zier's dog. There are different variations. Those are words used exactly the same and they, they've existed a lot longer than I've been alive. 
um, a lot longer. They are absolutely used more often now today as well as people choose, as people discover them and find that they work for them. There are lots of other varieties of pronouns. Yeah, and we talked a couple weeks ago about that there has been also a trend of like no pronouns. Uh, it's really common in the community to go, I don't want you to identify me and like sitting with that, that feeling. So instead of using any pronouns, you can say, oh, no, I don't use pronouns. So instead of using pronouns, you just use that person's name the whole time. Having no pronouns can be a little tricky for some people. Like think you have to actively think only ever say their name, only ever say their name, only ever say their name. Mm -hmm. And that can be a difficult thing to do. And I'm not saying that you're any less of a good person. If you struggle, you're going to struggle. It's okay. Um, but it's just coming to that adjustment. I like how people have stopped using honorifics. Like I don't want to be, uh, Mr. Miss or mix. So I'm thinking about people who are in the middle of their coming out process and they haven't told specific people needing to be able to switch your pronouns on the fly is very important to protect, um, gender transitioning, gender non-binary at any person who does not identify that way to that person yet. You need to be able to be very fluid with it. It can be a struggle and not just the people who are your friends have to deal with it. Like I forgot to do that and let them know it was okay to say my name is Al. They know I have a responsibility to share that information too. I can't assume that people know that. Yeah. And especially for allies, being able to be flexible is highly important. (laughs) It it will hurt your brain and it's okay. It's going to hurt your brain noodles. It's okay suffer for greater freedom later (laughs) you just get used to it after a certain period of time now when someone tells me their pronouns might i might might i screw up at some point sure but when they tell me what their pronouns are if i was using different ones in the conversation leading up to that immediately i've changed it will i make a mistake absolutely am i gonna fix it and move on yes usually by either quietly correcting myself as quick as possible and not making a scene or by the next time I have to use a pronoun or say their name, I simply correct it then. It's up to the person you're talking to what the best method is to do. I prefer that you would simply have made the mistake and then the next time fix it without saying anything and without making a scene. That's more of a safety concern for me. So it, I find that more helpful, but some people would prefer that you correct yourself right then and there. Just correct yourself and move on. But that's, you have to ask people what their preference is. When you, I, when you always introduce yourself to someone new and give your pronouns, they'll feel compelled to answer them back. If for some reason it might appear that you need to know, you may also ask, if I make a mistake, how would you like me to correct myself? So along with a lot of the pain that we have from being in the community, what kind of phobias do you think are the worst that exists in the general public? 20 years ago, homophobia. Now, transmisia, which is another way of saying transphobia. Phobia can be a misleading term. I usually just say, straight up say bigotry these days because it, it is a very negatively connotated word and I want you to feel that negative. 20 years ago, homophobia was the thing. 20 years ago, if you used the word gay in a sentence, you were probably referring to something that wasn't a person who was homosexual. You were referring to something in a negative light like, those shoes are gay. That's a type of homophobia and an aggression against queer people. Nowadays, it's transphobia and 
transmissia is the particular level of social violence against us, not necessarily physical violence, though that is a thing, but social violence. So microaggressions, active direct aggressions of saying trans people don't exist or aren't real, or that's an abomination unto God or some shit. Right now, the hot button hate is on trans people. Yeah, and some members of the community are silenced more than others. So like in I can speak for the sexuality camp because that's the part of the camp that I am in. Gays and lesbians tend to be more visible than pan people, omnisexuals, and there tends to be like a line that feels like you can't cross it because you're not queer enough and identifying like how much queer is queer and feeling right. stuck in that. And like understanding that ace phobia is a, just a word to describe the erasure and um, negative actions and prejudices and biases towards people who are asexual or in the ace unfortunately within the queer community itself not just larger normal normative culture that exists ace phobia is a huge thing people are not as accepting as they absolutely must be in the queer community of aces of asexual and, and asexual spectrum people it's just it's terrible we're working on it haters be damned you're gonna either get with the program or get out yeah but. so some of the violence that comes along it is like we were talking about earlier dead naming part of the <laughs> crazy amount of trauma the transitioning process and some people call it different things so how you call it dead naming some people call it oh that's my given name or birth name it's to refer to the name that they've left behind dead name someone's dead name it doesn't necessarily mean they died. That's that's the connotation in that phrase, especially in the days of yore of trans existence. That was what it was. Essentially, that person died. You usually moved, changed your legal name and started a new life and people just never heard from you again. And that's kind of how that name kind of, that that term developed from dead name. Not everyone sees it that way. Some people never change their name, regardless of how they identify and who they are. They never change their name and that's totally okay. For some people, the name they're assigned at birth is just the name they were assigned at birth, and it never really fit. You don't have to be queer or trans for that to be the case. I like to think about it, too. When you get married, you're changing your last name, or you're changing and creating a new family name, or however you decide to go about doing that. That is also a form of changing your name that is typical. Socially acceptable. Yeah, and it's thought about in that way. So now we have some general reminders that we need to remind everyone about um, because we've been floating these around, but not actually hard discussing them. So that's what we're going to do right. now. Um, so I mentioned early on about passing um, when I mentioned my partner of eight years. It's crazy. If you saw me out in public, um, we would just look like a heterosexual couple to you because mm -hmm. I am female in presentation he's male in presentation and so you wouldn't look at me and go oh that one's queer that one's a queer one you wouldn't be able to label me as bisexual in that relationship based on who I'm with right it's very it's helpful it can give me a lot of security I never have to worry about my safety because of how I present which is <laughs> unfortunate benefit that I've been cursed with so people that pass are also frustrated with that they pass because it never feels like you're queer enough to be accepted in the community um and right. you have to like constantly fight for yeah i pass but i'm still like belong here and having to like really fight for your space 
all of my queer friends who are of a multi-sexuality, bi or pan or otherwise, or who just identify as queer and who are in straight passing relationships, relationships that appear to be straight at all have the same sense of, I don't feel like I'm queer enough anymore. And that is a form of internalized queer phobia, essentially. Like that's an internalized problem, but the, the greater society is reinforcing it really, really badly. And I don't want people to feel like that. I don't, because you absolutely are a part of the queer community, whether your significant other makes your relationship look straight or not. Yeah. So I have never felt that in the community, but there's lots of pressure coming from everywhere. Um, and you can be in a relationship with queer people too, and just still feel like that pressure, like, oh, my significant other is passing less than me, or it looks que more queer than me in presentation. So there's lots of problems that exist. So we have lots of benefits that we're not being like hit, thrown out, killed. So we have right. a certain amount of safety, but we've also sacrificed a lot to be in that position. So woo. <laughs> But it also gives like me the perspective of I can help my community in ways because I am passing in a specific You are ninja. Way. But that's how it feels. Like, right? Like I am in a spot that like Al, you couldn't necessarily fit into. And I can I, stick internally. I can't pass for anything, although the, the last 16 months of wearing masks, people just assume I'm a woman. And Y'all, if I take off my mask, you're going to see a goatee. You're going to have a moment of what? And then you're just going to continue to assume I'm a woman and it's going to be completely wrong and it's okay. I've given up on that. But wearing masks means people don't stare at me quite as much. I mean, they might be staring at me because I'm wearing pants. I sewed myself and a crop top and I'm 300 pounds. So they're just like, why is that fat person showing their midriff? But they're not staring at me because I walked by with a beard and boobs out and that's dangerous. I legitimately try not to go to bathrooms in places I'm not comfortable with or I haven't been to before because it's actually dangerous. Yeah, so I've never had a threat just based on that alone. Hold hands with a woman in public. No one's going to blink an eye. Two men holding hands. Oh, <gasps> Yeah. <laughs> Queer people being allowed to express their own PDA, their public displays of affection, still a dangerous thing to do mm -hmm. still we've been using this one a lot but the term umbrella terms just refers to a word we use typically found within that category to describe a category so we went at length about multi-sexualities being the categorical name for for identities like bi pan omni and poly and then you have polyamory is both an umbrella term for a multitude of things and also a term itself um, gay being an umbrella term in its sort of own way is an easier term to use. Queer being the umbrella term of umbrella terms because queer stretches across all of these things, gender, sexuality, and otherwise. It is the biggest of umbrella terms and the shortest of words. And another thing we've been skating around is the coming out stories that we all have because we have to do them daily. Yeah, people don't think about that. I come out to people without my own consent because it, like I was just describing, while I'm wearing masks, I, I, I'm typically assumed to be a woman, even though that's not even accurate. Um, but before the pre-COVID era, 
I didn't have a choice. I walk around in public and I'm outing myself because I don't look in a conventional binary gender and I don't want to, not because I want people to see me, but because I just want to exist in my own life. But I, we do, we come out to our coworkers, we come out to our friends, we come out to our family, we come out to strangers, whether we want to or not. If you're in a queer relationship and you're in public, expressing PDA is a form of coming out because you're admitting to the people who are the bystanders around you that you're queer by showing public displays of affection for each other. Yeah, and it looks different, the coming out stories between gender and sexuality. So like, I have to physically tell people like they can assume my gender because what they see is what is expressed from me, typically. So I never have to go and like explain that component of my life, but I get to pick and choose who I decide to tell and who I don't tell. So for like some chunks of my family don't know about it. My friends all know about it. Some of my friends know about it. Um, I could choose to tell no one and keep it to myself. And that's a choice that I get to make. Right. It's important to note that if you are still in the closet, which is the opposite of coming out, it's not disclosing to people. Um, whether everybody or a select group of people, that is 100% valid. If you are not ready to tell people who you are, as you are, and you're still learning about yourself, do not have to tell people. You do not have to tell people. That's 100% valid. You are still a part of our community. You are still able to express pride, especially in the month of June. There is no rule about having to come out. And you get to decide when you do. Right. Mine happened in relevations. <laughs> like two years into my, my, my marriage. Like <laughs> it was a revelation that I am in fact a gay. <laughs> and then there's like in relationships where it presents one way, there's a discussion that has to happen of like, so I learned this about myself and we need to talk about it. It's really risky for trans people to come out to their new sexual partners, especially if they haven't necessarily had um, gender affirming surgery, if that's what they desire, particularly for trans women and very particularly for trans women of color coming out to just your, your own spouse or your possible sexual or romantic partner is a whole other level. And it's a very vulnerable one because you're hoping the person you've gotten to know at least a little bit is going to continue to be okay with knowing who you are actually like, like all of who you are in an explanation rather than just continuing on. Um, whether or not a trans person chooses to tell the person they're in a relationship with a trans, again, 100% valid choice, whatever it is. Yeah, and for me, it was relatively easy. I've known him for a pretty long time, and it's been eight years, so I would hope years. I know him by now. But there were some like word negotiations that needed to happen. Like, I didn't want you to call me a wife, and when you call me a partner, and like having to negotiate even just words you use. So I feel some space for that. Otherwise, it feels yeah. like if you present in a like if you present in a passing way, it feels like there's no space for that. And you kind of queered your actual relationship dynamics because the word partner is generally assumed to be a, a queer relationship. Um, if you were to walk into uh, your your new job day one, none of these people know you, and you start saying, "Well, my partner this and my partner that," and you don't have any pictures on the desk, that person's going to assume you're a lesbian, and that's the woman. You pulled some queerness into your straight passing relationship, and I'm here for it. <laughs> but not everyone does that. And that's okay. It's also something that people don't sometimes get a choice. Like they either have to say their husband, if they're gay or their wife, if they're a lesbian, and then people know it's a coming out thing again. 
Yeah, and that's also where words come in. Like I can choose which one I say. I can choose to say partner. I can choose to say husband. I can choose to say nothing at all. And it's great. But that's where I get to choose. <laughs> Um, one of the last kind of general terms and reminders, I mentioned it earlier, just glossed over it real quick. And we have some other stuff to get to. So I'm going to glaze over this one a little is the phrase turf. Again, that means trans or transgender exclusionary radical feminist. What that means is second wave feminists, largely people like the author of all of our beloved childhood books, Harry Potter, JK Rowling is a huge fucking turf. She thinks trans women are men just trying to ruin the feminism and shit and it's absolute bullshit and it's terrible the term turf trans exclusionary radical feminist that term we have i have issues with because you are neither feminist as feminism is currently existing you are not a feminist if you are a turf you are using the term feminism to for, to push your agenda that is further toxic to our community also straight people don't get to choose whether or not straight cis people don't get to choose whether or not trans people are valid um, but saying someone is a radical feminist implies they are in fact a feminist when in reality turfs are reductive to the feminist mission mm -hmm. and again not a feminist it doesn't make as much sense to say trans exclusionary reductivist so tur wouldn't make any sense and until our community comes up with a better term that removes the word feminism, I still have to say TERF, but it is important to note that TERFs aren't actual feminists and they certainly aren't radical. Yeah, it started as like a schism to feminism that actually was shortly after the end of the second wave. So partway of the third is when TERFs started being named. Um, well, because they, the second wave, it was acceptable to be a TERF. Right, so we just, it just started um as a schism and then over time feminists tend to deny that and say they're kind of their own thing they're not really attached they are to this. right so we have one more thing to talk about which is um allies so um allyship an ally loosely defined as a friend of the queer community or a and allies can exist for lots of things i'm an ally to the the, the poc the bipoc black lives do matter I'm an ally to that, to that community and to that cause. I am a friend of that cause and I will do what I can with the privileges I have to further it. Allies to the queer community are people who are fully accepting and inclusive of the queer community and all of our vast complexity. And they do so by supporting us, by helping further legislation to ensure that we have equal civil and human rights and protections and healthcare and so much stuff. But it is very important to to explain that they are not a part of the acronym lgbtqia the a at the end of that is asexual it's not ally i'm not a fan of exist the existence of an ally flag because you're not a part of the queer community that's the the use of ally and saying it's a part of the the acronym and a part of the, part of the community rather than just a friend of the community is trying to take cishet privilege or cisgender and separately hetero privilege not necessarily the two of them together and center the queer community around you again which is what greater society already does putting straight people at the middle of it i'm not a fan not a fan well and you haven't been for many years <laughs> so my little piece about allyship is um 
I understand that they're there and it's good that they exist. And I think they should have some sort of footing because allies exist within the community too. So from my own perspective, I have no gender diversity at all. <laughs> zero, <laughs> literally zero. So I we came up with a pretty cool term, intra-community <laughs> allyship, where I feel drawn to support other sexualities and other gender expressions, presentations, but not really, like, I, I don't get your struggles as much as I do, like, the multi-sexualities struggles. Right. So, like, my role as a ally in that position is like I'm trying my best to understand and like how I can help advance because I pass in most ways and I have a lot of privilege a lot more than some other community members so I don't know if that's it, word, but it should be <laughs> it, and it's not the fact that you pass as a cishet relationship that makes you an ally it's your feeling of being an ally, being a supporter, being a friend to the other parts of the queer community. So because you're cis and bi, you're an ally to the, the gender diverse community. So you're an, you're an ally to the intersex community and to the queer gender people, to the trans people, to the non-binary people. You're an ally to that chunk because you're not a part of it. You are in support of it and here to help and to here to support. That's how you're an ally. That's why it's intra-community allyship it doesn't, I mean, you can identify as an ally all you want. Um, it doesn't, re I don't see it as other queer people, uh, other queer people being allies, because I, unless you're going to be a turf, if you're queer, I'm going to take it as you are also an ally across the whole community. It's an expectation of being a part of the queer community and engaging with your queer peoples is that you are an ally to the rest of us because we are trying to be inclusive. We are trying to become better people and to try and create a model of expectations for what the larger society should be, which is inclusive in every way and shape and form that we can be to improve society. So I find it to be inherent, but you don't have to agree with that. Saying that you're still an ally is absolutely important. If that helps you explain to the rest of the people you meet who are a part of the queer community and to the, the cishet people, the straight people throughout throughout the world that that's how you exist, that's totally okay. Yeah, so we just finished our talk about words, Al. Crazy. We did a Whoa. lot of words. <laughs> we did do a lot of words. And you know what's terrible? There's a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> and there will Again, not be a part two at this juncture. <laughs> No, a year from now, we'll just do a part two on the words. One year out, how have they changed? So why do we have so many of them? Because people are complicated. Everybody's different. We want to have language to express who we are. The only way to do so is to create words that make sense to us. Mm -hmm. Which is it's why some whole... of the words are erasing and some of them are growing, expanding. Right. That's why they continue to evolve. That's why we don't still speak Old English thank god but that's how how things evolve humans from my sociology background he, what makes humans different is that we use language and have created a shared conglomeration of grunting sounds <laughs> different languages doesn't make a difference it's a shared understanding that grunt a plus grunt b equals word c and that is why humans are unique it's not that we walk 
on two feet. It's not that we talk because lots of animals talk. Have you seen the meme of the cat going, no, 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 no. <laughs> I can't get it out of my head. Other animals have a form of speech, have a verbal communication. It's the fact that as a collective and passed from generation to generation, we continue to share these specific sounds having very specific meanings. And of course, as with everything, they change over time. That's why we have so many words. And that's why it gets very confusing and you always need to update your language all the time. Yeah, there's no such thing as a queer person who learned all of it when they were a baby queer and then stopped. You don't get a pass to do that anymore. If only they could see our, uh, our text messages. Have you heard of this thing before? I've never seen this. What does this mean? Wait, there's new flags? What's happening? They made a... They made a specific gay men flag, not just a lesbian flag, but what about the rainbow flag? There's lots of other stuff we're going to talk about. Um, we absolutely will probably do another talk at some point about different terms that are like wild and crazy or that seem wild and crazy, but are really normal. Next week, we're going to do a overview of a book called Queer, a graphic history. My favorite way to describe it is the queer history comic book. It's a great introductory theory book, basic history of the queer community, lots of great pop culture references over time, but it's literally a graphic novel and I'm so stoked to talk about it. You should check it out. This episode will drop on Friday, June 25th at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. The um, queer history episode will drop one week after that on July 2nd at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. And we're going to have a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, well, very exciting recordings. And yeah, so we're going to start with history because we can't continue on without acknowledging our history or what's left of our history. But you, you do have to start the process of learning on your own. Some of us have gay mentors, queer mentors, people who are, you know, the like a drag mom who put you in drag first time, but who taught you the history a little bit and who kind of guides you, guides you through the process. We all kind of have one of those. I am a queer elder now. I just re it's just occurring to me that I am yours. Um, well, that's fun. Well, but we learned we were today years old when we learned that. We were to I was today years old when I realized I am your queer elder. Holy shit. Um, but some people have that, some people don't, but it is incredibly important that you become self-motivated, internally motivated to learn these things. Because without that knowledge, one, you might not really fit into the queer community because you, you might see a disconnect, but two, you aren't going to have the context for all of the beautiful things that we've created. The, the culture that the queer community has created wouldn't exist without its history, which is why we're going to focus on its history so much. That is our podcast for this week. We'll see what happens in the editing. And this has been QTB podcast with Lizzie and Al, and we will see you guys next time. Bye. Adios.